Father, thank you for your word. And we pray tonight, Lord, that you again will speak to our hearts. Lord, some rich treasures are in these chapters. And we ask, Lord, that you'll help us to go digging tonight and to find these truths and and apply them to our lives so that we can not only be hearers of the word, but doers of the word as well. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. A familiar sight at the time of Jesus was the sheepfold. Every green hill had a holding yard for sheep. They dotted the countryside all over Palestine. The shepherds would bring their flocks in at night to shelter them from the elements and to keep them away from the predators. Sometimes the sheepfold was just a cave. Other times they were walled enclosures made of mud or thorn bushes. Most often the tall walls around the sheep were piles of stone. The only way in or out of these sheepfolds was through a narrow passageway. And Jesus uses this common scene from daily life here in John chapter 10. Let's dig in in verse 1. Most assuredly I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs up some other way, the same is a thief and a robber. Jesus is observing. If you scale the wall, if you try to dig underneath, it's unauthorized entrance. It was the tactic of a sheep rustler. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. And to him the doorkeeper opens and the sheep hear his voice. You know, it was common for several shepherds to use the same sheepfold. One pen would corral many flocks. And a designated shepherd would spend the night in the doorway of the sheepfold in order to protect it from intruders. You know, sheep have an acute hearing recognition. They remember the voice of their shepherd. And in the morning, the shepherds would all come back to the sheepfold, and in order to separate their flocks, they would use the distinctive sound of their voice, a distinctive call. Instantly, all the sheep would begin to move in different directions and they would separate themselves out and each flock would go with the individual shepherd. The story's told of a band of Turkish warriors back in World War I who stole a flock of sheep off a Jerusalem hillside. The shepherd realized that he wasn't strong enough to overtake the soldiers and so he sounded out his distinctive call. And despite the efforts of the thieves, the sheep heard his voice And they returned to their shepherd. Jesus says in verse 3, And he calls his own sheep by name, and he leads them out. You know, the shepherd develops a relationship with the sheep. They, They almost become like pets, and he develops certain names for each of the sheep. The shepherd knows his sheep. In fact, he knows them by name. Harry Lorraine was a famous memory expert. He would amaze audiences by going out into the crowd. And in a matter of minutes, he would meet hundreds of people. Then then he would return and he would parade the folks back across the stage one by one. And he would recall each of their names. It was amazing. It was incredible. But Jesus puts Harry Lorraine to shame. (laughs) Because he knows the names of billions and billions of believers. Did you know he knows your name? And his memory is fooled by not some clever technique, but by the passionate love that he has for each of us. Jesus knows your name too. 
Verse 4, and when he brings out his own sheep, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. Remember the blind man back in chapter 9. He had never seen Jesus' face, but he recalled his voice. And likewise, we've never seen Jesus' face to face. Not face to face. Not in a physical sense. But you know, if we walk with Jesus on a regular basis, we, we learn to recognize his voice. People always ask, they say, how do I know the voice of God? Well, it's kind of like me learning your voice. You call my house uh, the first time I ever talked to you. I, I listened to you on the telephone. You have to introduce yourself. Well, well hello, I, I'm Renee. Well, I, okay, that's Renee's voice. Well, a couple of weeks later, she calls me back up and she says, Sandy, do, do you remember me? And I think, well, your voice sounds familiar. Well, I'm Renee. Well, she calls me a third time. Oh, Renee, how are you doing? The more I hear the voice, the more I learn to recognize it. And, and here we're told that the sheep know his voice. They've learned to recognize the voice of Jesus. We know how Jesus speaks to us. Sheep learn their shepherd's voice. I, I heard of a New York fire, an awful tragedy. A blind little girl appeared on the fourth floor. She was trapped in her apartment building. She was out on the ledge. There wasn't enough room for the ladders to reach her. And so a fireman stretched out a net below her and told her to jump. Of course, she couldn't see the net, and so she refused to jump. But just in the nick of time, her father rolled up in front of the burning apartment building. He had gotten home from work. He raced to the base of the building, and he shouted to his little girl to jump. She did, because she recognized her father's voice. And from time to time, faith demands that we take a leap of faith. Often we can't see into the future. But we hear our Father's voice and we jump. Well, verse 5 tells us, Yet they will by no means follow a stranger, but will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. You know, they say the only time that sheep follow a stranger is when they're sick. I think the same is true for Christians. Jesus used this illustration, but they did not understand the things which he spoke to them. And so then Jesus said to them again, and now he becomes much more direct. Most assuredly I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who ever came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. You know, an ancient sheepfold had no doors or no gates. The shepherd was its only door. He would lie down in the one passageway and his body became the barricade. Once the sheep were all tucked in, the shepherd would lay his body over the threshold. He would stay between the sheep and the dangers that might stalk them. In essence, the shepherd was saying, in order to harm these sheep, you've got to come over me. Harm these sheep over my dead body. That was the, the cry of the shepherd. And we need to understand that this is how Jesus sees us. He protects us. He laid down his own body, did he not? For us to be saved. He sacrificed his own body. And of course, there's only one passageway into the sheepfold. There's only one way in. There's only one entrance into a right relationship with God. There's only one door to heaven. There's only one way into God's kingdom. Jesus said, I am the way, 
the truth, the life. You have to come through Jesus. He's the way. He's the door into the sheepfold. And Jesus adds, if anyone enters by me, he will be saved. And he will go in and out and find pasture. You know, pastures in Palestine aren't these huge, flat, grazing lands like you find in Texas. Most of Israel, especially near Jerusalem, is rocky and it's mountainous. And there's just tiny little pockets of pasture situated between the steep slopes. Ample supplies of lush green grass are often difficult to access, and so it takes a skilled and caring and experienced shepherd to find pasture from his flock. Now Jesus says, anyone who follows me, anyone who enters by me, he'll be saved, but not just saved. Jesus' intention intention for you is not just to save you, to forgive you and send you to heaven. No, in the meantime, he wants to be able to lead you in and out and bring you into lush pasture and satisfy your soul and bring good gifts into your life and cause you to experience great fulfillment. You know, we live in a rocky and in a barren world. In spiritual pasture, real satisfaction, real peace in life. It's hard to come by, but our good shepherd knows our need. And he knows that pasture can be found. And he always does what it takes to keep his sheep full and satisfied. Verse 10, the thief does not come except to steal The thief does does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. He's talking about the thief now. And of course the thief is Satan. And I hope you know this is Satan's desire for you. You need to get this etched into your mind. This is the devil's desire for your life. He wants to steal from you. He wants to kill you. And he wants to destroy you. Maybe not in that order, but that's what he wants to do. Whenever you're tempted to steer from God's will, understand, this is the destination you're headed. You're about to get ripped off. Something of value is about to die inside of you. You're about to be destroyed. On the other hand, Jesus promises His people, I have come that they may have life, and not only life, but that they may have it more abundantly. Abundant life. You know, yeah, I love the word in the original language. It's superabundance. In other words, he comes to give us a life with no end, with no limit of blessing and opportunity. An old man told of his first drive over the Rocky Mountains. He was in a 1946 Ford. The steep grade took its toll on the motor. It overheated, forcing him to stop several times. The trip was stressful, to say the least. He eventually made it to the top of the mountain, but he didn't enjoy the ride, and he had very little interest in the scenery. Recently, that same man made the same trip over the Rockies, this time in a brand new Ford truck. The motor purred like a kitten all the way up the mountain. It hugged the curves. It climbed the inclines. This time, there was no apprehension. The trip was fun. Several times, he stopped to admire the panoramic views. Hey, without Jesus, life is like the man's first trip. In Christ, it's like his second trip. And notice this, the terrain doesn't change. Everyone's life is full of steep stretches and sharp curves. 
But with the power of Jesus under my hood, I run better. And I'm less likely to overheat. The challenges remain the same, but I can enjoy the journey when I travel with Jesus. He says, I not only have come to save you, but I want to take you in and out. I want to help you find pasture. I want you to have not just life, but life more abundantly. This is Jesus' desire for you. And then I love what he says. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. But a hireling, he who is not the shepherd, one who does not own the sheep, he sees the wolf coming and he leaves the sheep and he flees. And the wolf catches the sheep and scatters them. The hireling flees because he is a hireling and does not care about the sheep. The hireling or the hired hand, the guy who only works for a paycheck. He has no real investment in the sheep. He lacks commitment. And then at the first sight of danger, guess what? He heads for cover. He leaves the sheep behind. They're not his sheep anyway. He's not going to sacrifice for these sheep. He's not going to put himself in harm's way to protect these sheep. You know, the term pastor is actually a Latin Latin word for shepherd. And a good pastor is like the shepherd. He loves the sheep. They're they're his responsibility. And thus he's willing to sacrifice for the sheep and put himself in harm's way to protect the sheep. He's accountable to Jesus, the owner of the flock, for the state of the sheep. And yet, sadly, I'm afraid that too many pastors today are nothing but hired hands. They work for a paycheck. And when the going gets rough, they bolt for greener grass. You know, I've discovered that some pastors, they start out as shepherds. The problem, though, is that they've been treated like hired hands for so long, they now act the part. If a congregation wants a real shepherd, then they need to let their pastor lead, not treat him like a hired hand. Well, Jesus says it again. He says, I am the good shepherd, and I know my sheep, and I am known by my own. As the Father knows me, even so I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And other sheep I have which are not of this fold, them also I must bring, and they will hear my voice, and there will be one flock and one shepherd. Guess who these other sheep are? They're you, and they're me, they're us. They're those Gentiles who would later believe and enter into God's family. We're the other sheep who received the gospel. And now together with the Jews, we've become one flock. Jesus is the one shepherd now of both Jews and Gentiles. He says, therefore, my father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down and I have power to take it again. This command I have received from my father. Never forget the crucified Christ was not a victim. Jesus' life was not taken from him. It was laid down by Jesus voluntarily. For us. Jesus was the good shepherd who willingly and voluntarily sacrificed his life for the sake of the sheep. Isn't it ironic? Under the old covenant, the sheep were sacrificed for the shepherd. While under the new covenant, it's the shepherd 
who becomes a sacrifice for the sheep. Isn't that amazing? Jesus, the good shepherd, is the one that got sheared so his sheep could be saved. Verse 19 tells us, Therefore there was a division again among the Jews because of these sayings. And many of them said, He has a demon and is mad. Why do you listen to him? Others said, These are not the words of one who has a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? The miracle back in chapter 9 was still fresh in everyone's thinking. Well, now it was the Feast of Dedication in Jerusalem, and it was winter. The Feast of Dedication, it goes by several different names. Often it's called the Feast of Lights. Sometimes it's called Hanukkah. It occurs in the Jewish month of Chislev, which parallels with our December. That's why Hanukkah overlaps with the Christian celebration of Christmas. Hanukkah was not one of the seven major feasts ordained by God in the Old Testament. It was a later addition to the Jewish festival season. Hanukkah commemorated the rededication of the temple between the period that existed and occurred between the two testaments, the intertestament period. In the year 167 B.C., a Syrian tyrant by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes, he invaded Israel, and on December the 25th, he did the unthinkable. He offered a swine, a pig, on the altar in the temple. Swine, pigs, were unclean to the Jews. This was the ultimate blasphemy. The abomination that would bring desolation. This so infuriated the Jews that it prompted them to fight back. And over the next three years, a family of fighting priests, the Maccabeans, they led a guerrilla revolt against Antiochus and his troops. They eventually drove out the Syrians. And on December the 25th, 164 B.C., Judas Maccabeus entered the temple, and he cleansed its defilement. And as part of its restoration, Judas went to relight the menorah, the sacred candlestick. But he found only enough oil to burn for a single day. God, though, worked a miracle. He caused that single day's portion of oil to burn for eight full days. And to this day, this is why Hanukkah lasts eight days, and it centers around the lighting of the Jewish menorah. Well, the rest of the dialogue here in chapter 10 takes place during Hanukkah, the Feast of Dedication, about two and a half months now after the healing of the the blind man in chapter 9. Verse 23, and Jesus walked in the temple in Solomon's porch. This was the long roof-covered colonnade just east of the temple proper. Now, remember, we're told that it was winter. It's in what we would call December. We've been in in Israel in December, and it can get nippy, especially in Jerusalem. Jerusalem can get drizzly. It can get cold. Sometimes it can snow. And here they are, wintertime, a little chilly in the air. It was definitely time to pull out the thermal robes. In fact, somebody said that John was probably wearing his long johns. Get it? John was wearing his long johns. Get that? That was a joke. Solomon's porch provided Jesus a little shelter from the elements. Well, then the Jews surrounded him, literally. They hemmed him in. And they cornered him. 
And they said to him, how long do you keep us in doubt? In other words, spit it out now. Stop beating around the bush. If you are the Christ, the Messiah, tell us plainly. What a silly assertion here. Back in John chapter 8, verse 58, you remember Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am. Rather than beating around the bush, Jesus claimed to be the voice that had been speaking from the burning bush. Jesus hadn't shot away at all from the question. He had claimed to be God. There was no doubt about it. Verse 25, Jesus answered them, I told you and you did not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. But you do not believe because you're not of my sheep. As I said to you, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. And I give them eternal life. And they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. What a wonderful verse. That if you know Jesus, nobody can snatch you from the Father's hand. This verse always reminds me of the Allstate insurance commercial. You're in good hands with Allstate. And did you know you're in good hands with Jesus Christ? If you're in His hands, nobody can snatch you out. And it's interesting here. Notice. Jesus says, no one can snatch you out of my hand. And then He says, no one can snatch you out of my Father's hand. It's as if Jesus' hands and the Father's hands are the same hands. Well, they are. And he leaves no doubt in verse 30, he utters a shocker, I and my Father are one. Wow. The Jews wanted it straight. Well, this is about as straight and clear as it gets. The Father and the Son are two persons, but they are of one substance. They are one. One God. The Bible reveals one God who exists in three distinct persons, Father, Son, And Holy Spirit, this is what we call the doctrine of the Trinity. But I love this thought. No one can snatch you out of my hand. You're in good hands with Jesus. He's got a tight grip. He has you in his grasp. No one can pry you away. You know, this is why the Vikings lost last week to the saints. You you, you realize this. The Vikings kept putting it on the ground. Poor Adrian Peterson, he couldn't hold on to the ball. They kept snatching it out of his hands. That wouldn't have happened to Jesus had he been the running back for the Vikings. Jesus never gets stripped. He never fumbles what's placed in his hands. Nobody can snatch you out of Jesus' hands. And of course, Jesus and the Father are one here. It's clear. You know, throughout the Old Testament, God's plural nature was clearly taught. You remember as far back as creation, God said, Let us make man in our image. Notice the use there of the plural pronouns. The Trinity was taught from the very beginning. And yet the Jews, they failed to recognize the Trinitarian nature of God. And thus they considered Jesus guilty of blasphemy here and deserving of the death penalty. That's why in verse 31, then the Jews, they took up stones again to stone him. 
Jesus answered them, Many good works I have shown you from my Father. For which of those works do you stone me? The Jews answered him saying, For a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy. And because you being a man, make yourself God. They understood exactly what his claims were. And Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said, you are gods. And here he quotes from Psalm 82, verse 6. Now Jesus continues, If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and the scripture cannot be broken. And I I want you to notice the parentheses here first. Obviously, Jesus believed in the authority and in the reliability of the Bible. He says, the scriptures which cannot be broken. Hey, attack this book if you like. Deny it if you will. Try to refute it if you can. Just simply ignore it. But the Bible will eventually wear you down or win you over. It cannot be broken. It's been said the Bible is an anvil that has broken many hammers. But why beat on the Bible like an anvil? There's a better use for something so solid and so sure. Why don't you make it the foundation for your life? Why don't you build on it rather than beat on it? Why don't you build on what can never be broken and will last forever? That sounds like a good foundation. That sounds like a solid rock. Well, let's go back to verse 35 now. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, do you say of him whom the Father sanctified and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? Now, if you go back to Psalm 82 and explore its context, you'll see that God is there rebuking Israel's judges. In fact, that text in Psalm In Psalm 82, it concludes, How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? In the context, those judges in Psalm 82 were clearly human beings. They were called gods with the little g because they represented the one true God, the capital G. In other words, these men were gods only in the sense that they stood in God's place. And they delivered God's word. And what Jesus is now saying is that if the psalmist ascribed the term gods to these wicked judges, well then what in the world is wrong with the real son of God using the term for himself? Makes sense. Sadly though, there are cults who have used this verse to justify the deification of the believer. That we all can become gods in the same manner that God is God. This is a gross misrepresentation and misinterpretation of this verse. You know, be careful. If you're a god in the Psalm 82 sense or in the John 10.35 sense, then you're making yourself a wicked human being and you're putting yourself in line for God's judgment. Just be careful there. Well, verse 37 tells us, If I do not do the works of my Father, do not believe me. But if I do, though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and believe that the Father is in me and I in him. Jesus is saying, don't just listen to my words, examine my works. 
Jesus made claims that could have been viewed as blasphemous had they not been validated by his miracles. It was Jesus' works that backed up his words and proved that he was God. Verse 39, Therefore they sought again to seize him, but he escaped out of their hand, and he went away again beyond the Jordan to the place where John was baptizing at first, and there he stayed. Then many came to him and said, John performed no sign, but all the things that John spoke about this man were true, and many believed in him there. Now Jesus has challenged his critics to judge not just his words, but his works. And to judge his words in light of his works. Now in chapter 11, Jesus does one of his greatest works. A certain man was sick. Lazarus of Bethany, the town of Mary and her sister Martha. Bethany was a suburb of Jerusalem. It was on the eastern slope, still on the eastern slope, of the Mount of Olives. Jews would pass through Bethany on their way up to Jerusalem. And it was that Mary who anointed the Lord with fragrant oil and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. John identifies Mary with an event of which he's not yet written. She will perform this extravagant act of worship later in chapter 12. We'll read about it when we get there. Therefore the sister sent to him saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. Evidently, Jesus had a special affinity for Lazarus. Not that he loved, Jesus loved everyone. But, but they knew that he loved Lazarus. There must have been some interaction between the two of them that, that caused them to, to identify Lazarus. He whom you love. And, and I love this. John didn't write, he who loves you. He, he said to Jesus, he whom you love. And I think this is true of all Christians. The real distinctive trait about a Christian is not that we love God. Who, who wouldn't love God? Who shouldn't love God? I mean, God is so lovable. That, that's no big miracle that we love God. The amazing thing, the distinctive thing, is that God loves you. And that God loves me. That we are he, are he who he loves. Now when Jesus heard that, that his friend Lazarus was sick, he said, this sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now this was also said of the man born blind. And Jesus uses this tragedy to weave his glory. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that he was sick, he stayed two more days in the place where he was. Now wait a minute here. Wait a minute, Jesus. Is this any way to show someone that you love them? They're sick. You have miracle power. You can meet their need, yet you drag your feet. You wait two more days before you bother to visit them. Is this any way to show you, show them that you love them? I understand that human love and God's love act and behave very differently. You see, human love coddles. Human love rushes to alleviate the suffering whenever it appears. You know, your, your kid, your 
Little boy's outside playing outside. He skins his knee. Oh, let mommy see it. Let me, let me kiss your little boo-boo. You, you know, you want to alleviate that suffering as soon as it comes about. That's human love. Yet God's love is more powerful than human love. God's love turns ashes into beauty. God's love takes tragedy and turns it into glory. Thus, God's love is able to wait two days. Here's a good way to phrase it. Human love is a pampering love, while God's love is a perfecting love. And this is why God doesn't shelter His kids from pain. This is why He forces us at times to face life head on, the good and the bad. God knows that faith doesn't get stretched without tension. And character isn't forged except through struggle. And courage doesn't grow apart from challenge. And conviction doesn't crystallize unless there's pressure. Jesus has lessons to teach those that he loves. And this is why he waits. Verse 7, Then after this he said to the disciples, Let us now go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, lately the Jews sought to stone you. And are you going there again? They were afraid for Jesus' life. Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if one walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. As long as you're walking in the light of God, as long as you're in His will, you won't stumble. This is why Jesus wasn't afraid. He knew that His time had not yet come. He knew that it was God's will that He go to Bethany. And because it was God's will, God was responsible for His protection. These things He said, and after that He said to them, Our friend Lazarus sleeps, but I go that I may wake him up. Then his disciples said, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get well. I mean, they figured Lazarus just had a fever that he could sort of sleep off. Just give him a little rest, Lord. He'll be fine. But verse 13, however, Jesus spoke of his death, but they thought he was speaking about taking rest and sleep. Again, the disciples were on a different frequency. This happens often, doesn't it? Jesus here is speaking frequently, and they were thinking literally. Then Jesus said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead. You know, sleep is a familiar idiom for death in both the Bible and in secular literature. Jesus used this idiom once before. You remember when he entered Jairus' house. You know, he told the mourners that were there mourning over the little girl that had died. He, He said to them, the girl is not dead but sleeping. Of course, the Jews laughed at him. I mean, the little girl had no pulse. Her body had gotten cold. Her eyes had rolled back in her head. What do you mean she's just sleeping? And Jesus wasn't debating the autopsy here. I mean, he knew she was dead. But in anticipation of the miracle he was about to perform, he knew that the little girl's condition was temporary, and therefore she was sleeping. 
Sleep is a fitting analogy for death when you think about it. In sleep, our body slows down while our mind remains active. And in death, though our body stops, our spirit lives on. In a sense, it is a sleep. Death is as temporary as sleep in one sense. At the resurrection, one day all people will be resurrected bodily, some to eternal life and others to eternal damnation. We'll all receive new eternal bodies. Call it the last wake-up call. As the poet puts it, sleep is but a short death. Death is but a longer sleep. Sleep was a popular analogy, by the way, for death among the early Christians. The believers referred to their burial sites as, quote, resting houses. Our English word cemetery, it literally means the sleeping place. Christianity brought new truth to the world that death is not final. That death is simply the foyer for eternity. That the grave has a door on the inner side. And Jesus uses this occasion to prove his point. Verse 15 tells us, And I am glad for your sakes that I was not there. I'm glad that that he died. I'm glad I waited those two days that you may believe. Nevertheless, let us go to him. Then Thomas, who is called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, Oh, let us all go that we may die with him. You remember Thomas' nickname? Doubting Thomas. You're right. And here he lives up to his nickname. Now, understand, Thomas was devoted to Jesus. Make no mistake about it. Notice, he's ready to die with Jesus if need be. I mean, he's the sailor who's willing to go down with the ship. Thomas' problem is he just didn't have a whole lot of faith. Did, Did you hear about the optimist that took the pessimist out duck hunting. He really wanted to show off his new hound dog. But the pessimist took one look at this dog, and he he frowned, and he said, just looks like a mutt to me. Well, pretty soon a flock of geese, they flew overhead, and bam, bam! Two of the geese fell right out in the middle of the lake. All of a sudden, this hound dog goes running on top of the water, all the way out to the two geese, grabs them in his, his mouth, comes back on top of the water, all the way back across the lake. The optimist sort of sticks out his chest, and he asks his friend, he says, well, now what do you think about my dog? The pessimist says, oh, your dumb dog can't even swim. I mean, that was Thomas. I mean, look on the negative side. The cup is always half empty, never half full. And it's interesting here, Thomas is called what? The twin. Apparently, he had a twin brother or a twin sister. And he or she is probably here tonight. Are you Thomas's twin? Are you a pessimist? Are you, you always negative about life? Do you always look on the dark side rather than the bright side? Some of you are. Some of you are negative people. When you wake up in the morning and greet the day, it's always, good Lord, it's morning. Instead of, good morning, Lord. How do you greet the day? 
Hey, we all need to realize that when we travel with Jesus, there's always a bright side. Don't be the doubter. Be committed like Thomas, but have some faith. Verse 17 tells us, So when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Now Jesus had been in Bethabar on the other side of the Jordan, 20 miles from Bethany. So it took Martha's messenger a day to reach him. Once he got the message, he waited two days. Now it takes a day for him to walk to Bethany. This all means that Lazarus had died shortly after the messenger had departed. That means that when he returned, Jesus' message to them, you remember what it was? This sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God. It seemed like a hollow promise, didn't it? Because Lazarus wasn't just sick at that point. He was dead as a doorknob. Now, Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles away. And many of the Jews had joined the women around Martha and Mary to comfort them concerning their brother. And so the whole thing had gathered quite a crowd. Then Martha, as soon as she heard that Jesus was coming, went and met him, but Mary was sitting in the house. You remember Mary was the more emotional, it seems, of the two, and so she was probably still mourning Lazarus' loss. Then Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. She accuses Jesus here of a missed opportunity. Now Martha's faith was strong, I believe that. She had no doubt that if Jesus had come in time, he had the power to have saved her brother's life. She's about to learn, though, that Jesus never misses an opportunity. He just has his own timetable. And you need to remember that tonight. That he never misses an opportunity. He just has his own timetable. You could write that down. Now, Martha's faith was strong... But it was struggling here. She wants to believe that Jesus can still perform a miracle. But you see, this is no longer a mere illness. This is no longer a feeble fever. She, sees, she has seen that Jesus can handle fevers. But the king of death has now choked the life out of her brother. This is different. Martha believes in healing. She's seen Jesus handle fevers. But is her faith big enough? And bold enough and bad enough and brave enough to tackle the grim reaper. Well, she says to Jesus, But even now, I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, Your brother will rise again. And Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. (laughs) Now notice, Martha believes in the doctrine of the resurrection. Her theology is correct. She's right on. One day, in the future, all of our bodies will live again. As Paul said to the Corinthians, our mortal bodies must put on immortality. But Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. And in the Greek, it's the double negative. It literally reads, shall never, never die. Jesus is asking Martha, do you really believe this? You see, Mary believed a doctrine. But does she believe in Jesus 
And there's a difference. You can believe doctrines about Jesus, but that doesn't mean that you believe in Jesus. You see, she makes a statement of faith in verse 24. But real faith is more than statements. Real faith is more than words. You can believe in the right doctrines. You can quote the right creeds. But when was the last time the power behind the doctrine jumped off the page and got a hold of your mind and your heart and your hands and your feet? Like Martha, do you believe in the resurrection one day yet future? Or do you believe that right now Jesus has the power of resurrection? He can resurrect a dead life or a dead marriage or a dead dream or a dead friendship or a dead ministry. You see, we can believe in the doctrine of creation, but what about His creative power in our hopeless situation that we face? No, when Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life, he took the truth off of the page and he put it in a person. He takes it out of the realm of doctrine and puts it into the realm of relationship. He moves it out of the future and brings it into the present. Real faith is more than a statement. It's reliance on a person. And so Jesus asks Martha, and he asks us, do you believe this? you and she said to him yes Lord I believe that you are the Christ the son of God who is to come into the world that's not what he asked her though was it (laughs) she sort of sidesteps the question and when she had said these things she went her way and secretly called Mary her sister saying the teacher has come and is calling for you And as soon as she heard that, she arose quickly and came to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the town, but was in the place where Martha met him. Then the Jews who were with her in the house and comforting her, when they saw that Mary rose up quickly and went out, followed her, saying, she's going to the tomb to weep there. Then when Mary came where Jesus was and saw him, she fell down at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And she just repeats Martha. Her faith is sort of in the same shape, I would think. Therefore, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her weeping, he groaned in the spirit and was troubled. And the expression here for groan means a deep-seated anger. He's more than just distressed here. Jesus is mad. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. And that's when Jesus wept. Shortest verse in the Bible. Verse 35, though, records a monumental moment in human history. It's the day God cried. Jesus wept. But why did he cry? And there were various theories even then. The Jews said, see how he loved him. And some of them said, could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind also have kept this man from dying? They think he's crying because he can't do anything about the situation. Some of the bystanders figured he was grieving for Lazarus. Others thought he was upset because he had arrived too late. But to me, none of the theories fit the facts. I believe Jesus cried... Not because 
of what he allowed death to do to the person inside the tomb. No, the reason he cried was because of what his followers outside the tomb had allowed death to do to them. They had allowed the grim reaper to waltz right into their lives and strip from them everything they held precious and dear. They watched the vile enemy death rip off their joy and their faith. They just handed over to him their hope and their happiness without even a struggle. It was such a sad scene. It was enough to make you cry. It was enough to make God cry. Verse 38. Then Jesus, again groaning in himself, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone laid against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of him who was dead, said to him, Lord, by this time there is a stench, for he has been dead four days. And I love the old King James Version here. You can't improve on it. In the old King James, Martha says, Lord, by this time he stinketh. Sure he did. He stinketh. Lazarus smelled like leftovers that had been left too long in the fridge. He stinketh. You know, it's interesting. Superstitious Jews believe that the spirit hovered over a dead body for three days after death. But after the third day, they saw that the body was so deteriorated that the spirit would give up hope of returning. Here, if anyone at Lazarus' tomb embraced that kind of silly notion, by the fourth day, they would have abandoned all hope. Verse 40. Jesus said to her, Did I not say to you that if you would believe, you would see the glory of God? And then they took away the stone from the place where the dead man was lying. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. And I know that you always hear me, but because of the people who are standing by, I said this, that they may believe that you sent me. And now when he had said these things, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And it's been pointed out that if Jesus had not been specific, Lazarus, come forth, he would have cleaned out the entire graveyard. Every corpse in the world, perhaps, would have come bounding from the grave. He specified, Lazarus, come forth. Now, it's interesting. This was Lazarus' first funeral. But it would not be his last, would it? He was resurrected to die again. But I'm sure his second funeral was much different than his first For no one present this day would ever see death quite the same. No longer is death final in their minds. Now it's just transitional. No longer is death a burial. Now they see it as a birth. No longer is it a loss. Now it's a promotion. You see, Jesus took the fear out of death. He stripped it of its teeth. Jesus took the sting out of death, as Paul put it. He turned death into a reason for gladness, not sadness. Verse 44, And he who had died came out bound hand and foot with grave clothes. 
and his face was wrapped with a cloth. Notice, notice Lazarus was alive, but he was bound. He had new life, but he still wore grave clothes. And you see, this is the predicament of every single believer in Jesus. When we come to Christ, spiritually, we get resurrected. We become a recipient of new life. Spiritually, we become a new person. But the attitudes that we've developed from the past, the habits that we've learned, the thought patterns that have been programmed into our minds remain. We're alive, but we're still wearing grave clothes. Jesus gave Lazarus new life. But Jesus, notice this, Jesus didn't free him from the grave clothes. That wasn't Jesus' job. Jesus assigned that responsibility to who? To Lazarus' friends. Jesus said to them, loose him and let him go. And you see, this is the church's job. It's our job to help each other get free from the bondage of sin and the bondage of our past. Our role is to help each other see ourselves in Christ and shed the sinful habits and change our perspective and learn to think biblically. It's our job to help each other swap grave clothes for grace clothes. How should you treat your spouse? How should you treat your friend? How should you treat your brothers and sisters in church? Here's your job. You're to help them get out of those grave clothes and get into some nice, new, grace clothes. Clothes fitting for their new life in Christ. New attitudes, new thoughts, new perspectives, new mentalities. Verse 45, Then many of the Jews who had come to Mary and had seen the things Jesus did believed in him. But some of them went away to the Pharisees and told them the things Jesus did. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered a council and said, What shall we do? For this man works many signs. And I love Peterson's paraphrase here of the Pharisees. He renders it, What do we do now? This man keeps on doing things, creating God signs. I mean, just about the time the jealous Jews had discredited one miracle Jesus worked, then he would turn around and he'd work another. When it comes to Jesus, damage control is getting difficult here. Keeps working miracles. And notice the term used for Jesus' miracles. Peterson calls them God signs. I like that. This is exactly why Jesus worked these miracles. To prove that he was God. Understand that you need to grasp this. Everybody Jesus healed died later. Everyone he raised from the dead died a second time. Jesus' miracles weren't intended to alleviate all suffering or to end the funeral business. His miracles had a message. They were God's signs. His power revealed his person and his promises. Verse 48, if we let him alone like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. This is the rationale of the Jews. That's why they hated Jesus. He was a threat to their power and their prophets. You see, the Jewish aristocracy, they had a little arrangement with the Romans. Hey, you scratch my back, I'll scratch your back. You keep us in power, we'll, we'll go ahead and, and, and sort of allow you to do your thing. 
The Jews cooperated with Rome. The Rome, Rome propped up the Jews. And the problem with the, as far as the Jews were concerned, Jesus was upsetting the status quo. And one of them, Caiaphas, being high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you consider that this is expedient for us, that one man should die for the people and not the whole nation should perish. Caiaphas' comment was an accidental prophecy. He didn't realize how true his statement was. He intended to put Jesus to death to save his own skin, but Jesus' death would in reality save the whole world. It was an accidental prophecy. In fact, we're told, now this he did not say on his own authority, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation and not for that nation only, but also that he would gather together in one the children of God who were scattered abroad. Caiaphas was a wicked man pronouncing a death sentence, but God was using him as a high priest and the high priest's authority to prophesy our salvation. What a great irony. Then from that day on, they plotted to put him to death. Therefore, Jesus no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there into the country near the wilderness to a city called Ephraim, and there remained with his disciples. It was the calm before the storm. And the Passover of the Jews was near, and many went from the country up to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. Then they sought Jesus and spoke among themselves as they stood in the temple. What do you think? That he will not come to the feast? Now both the chief priests and the Pharisees had given a command that if anyone knew where he was, he should report it that they might seize him. The chief priests had gone so far as to put a bounty out on Jesus' head. It's sad that one of his own disciples would be the person to collect. And we'll read about that. Next time, chapter 12. So, uh, chapter 12, chapter 13, read that for next week. That'll get us into the upper room. The following week, chapters 14 and 15. The next